Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and permanent capital. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find things like an owner. My guest in this episode is Jason Hill. Jason acquired Precision Stoneworks, a custom countertop fabrication and installation business from his father-in-law and now runs it as the CEO. Since acquiring, he's been relentlessly focused on customer service, improving efficiencies in the company, and making sure employees have the tools they need to do their jobs. I love learning from Jason's experience, constantly searching for a better tool and better way of operating. And if heavy machinery is interesting to you, you're in for a good one. Enjoy. Thanks, Jason, for joining us. It's good to have you here. I'm looking forward to chatting about countertops. It's something I haven't talked about before or had on the podcast. And of course, taking over your father-in-law's business, any family business is fun to chat about as well. So excited to hear about that. Would you talk a little bit about your background and then how you got into this business through your father-in-law? My father-in-law, they purchased the business, him and a partner in 2006. That would have been my junior year of high school. I'd known my wife at the time, but we weren't together. So I didn't really know the business well. I knew he had bought a countertop business, but 2006, the timing was not good at all. It was mostly uh, you hear the headaches and the horror stories of the housing market was crashing in Atlanta. By the time we had started dating was probably 2009, 2010. So that was kind of at the bottom of the business. I was at school down in Atlanta 
school's not my forte. I made it through, but I made it through in five years and then took the year after that just to kind of recover. I drove across the country and did a lot of other things to waste time. My wife was going to get her master's. So between me taking five years and then taking a year off, she was done with her master's degree and found a job in Atlanta, which kind of set up for where we're going to live. And then I started looking for a job after we knew she was going to be in Atlanta. So I got into selling forklifts for a brief period of time. I enjoyed the job because it's similar to this podcast. You're just reaching out to every small business that has a loading dock or warehouse space and anything from food production to we met guys that would recycle old computers into the copper, glass, and plastic components and sell it for recycling material. So you just got to meet a ton of different businesses and business owners doing that. But I did not enjoy the company I worked for. And my father-in-law was aware of that. And it would have been probably 2013. He called me one day. I was at lunch and just said, would you like to tell your boss to have a good life? Because he knew I was going to start looking for another job. And I was like, yeah, I'm listening. He was well aware that's what I was looking to do. And he's like, well, we need an extra set of hands. Like there's some machines. I'd worked on a lot of cars and different machinery growing up. And he's like, there's stuff you could repair and work on while you're here. But in the off hours, whenever you need it, you could have the flexibility to go look for another job instead of trying to do it while you're currently working for the forklift company, which sounded like a great opportunity because the best time to find a job is when you already have one, but it's tough to do interviews and phone calls. And this is back when everything was in person. So it's not easy to leave all the time and have an answer as to where you're going when you've just been in a sales job for six months, you're expected to be there all the time. So I said, yes. And I went there, just started working in the shop and look, whatever they needed, machine that was broken, people needed to carry stuff, take stuff to job sites, drop stuff off. Whatever they needed me to do was the labor. I was happy to do it because I was happy to be out of my other job. From there, the person that was doing all the installations was kind of starting to upset some customers. He had been with the company for a long time. He was a subcontractor, but I think kind of the years had worn on on both sides. He had disagreements with my father-in-law. My father-in-law had disagreements with him. So as we would get a phone call from a builder of like, hey, if you guys are going to keep doing our countertops, make sure the current installer is not the one installing it. So I would start going on to more job sites and doing more of the installations until I was basically doing all the installations. And that would have been 2014, 2015. Things were starting to turn around. People were starting to build houses again. And we were starting to push into trying to get into production builders. So our business was picking up as well. We got fairly busy to where my father-in-law and his partner just couldn't handle like the call volume, the office work. It was just the two of them in the office for a long time because, you know, times were so slow. So we interviewed some other installers and it was either we were going to hire someone for the office or I was going to come into the office and someone else was going to have to do the installations. We interviewed some installers, found a guy that was, I mean, just really good at what he does. He's still working with us today. And I came into the office over the next couple of years, we kind of got busier. I got my hands in more of the business sides of things. And then one of the partners was looking to retire. So the first thought was to sell the company. 
The second thought for was me to buy only his portion in the business. And that was something I was interested. I've always kind of had the drive to do my own thing. And the six months I was working for someone else was not what I would consider an enjoyable experience. I mean, really, fundamentally, he ran a great business, but the disagreements and how some of the things were happening it was very frustrating to me. But there's nothing I could do. Well, at the time, I was a year and a half out of college, but I was only half a year into the working force. And he'd been running the company for 40, 50 years at the time. It was very successful. But I knew I would like to get into owning my own business. So the opportunity presented myself to buy half the company. And I was excited because it would be, in my mind, fairly easy because we can keep all the debt structure, everything in place. I just basically had to come up with enough money that he was willing to sell his shares, but I didn't have to buy the whole company. I didn't have to worry about taking over all the debt. The company would just, it's, we're a C-corp, so I could take over his stock for whatever he thought was a fair price. And he wasn't looking to retire. He was just at the age where he had been through kind of the worst of the housing market while owning a countertop company. And he knew he was at the age of retirement and he knew if he got a fair price for his shares that he would be set to retire whenever the time came. And it's like, he didn't want to stay involved from a financial perspective to where if you had a weather, another storm, he didn't want to be tied to it financially. He just wanted to work. So we started the process and it's like some of the other podcast guys that you've spoke with basically buying a small business. And I was 29 at the time. I didn't have any money. Kind of went down the path of how does someone that was that young at the time come up with I believe originally it would have been somewhere between half a million and a million dollars, and I didn't have it. So we started looking at loan options, things like that. We got the nod from a couple of the bankers we talked to, like this qualifies for an SBA loan. The current owners had bought with an SBA loan and had a poor experience with the bank, so they were really against it. But unless someone else was going to come up with the money... I didn't have a lot of options. I didn't have collateral. So my wife and I had bought a house, fixed it up and sold it. And that I had some money and then we had bought our second one from fixing that one up. We were in the middle of the second flip when all this was going on. So basically all our money was tied up. So we started talking to an SBA lender. I made some poor bank pitches at the beginning. Those weren't the guys that wrote our loans, but it was a learning experience. The small business, I think a lot of them are like this, was always the two owners knew everything about the business. So they didn't make the very diligent effort to keep all the financials very clean and in order to where you could go to a bank and say, hey, this is a business. Here's all the numbers. They understood the money and the cash side of everything. And then the accountant's job was make everything fit, file taxes. And for a long time, they were just trying to keep the business afloat. Time kind of passed. We realized the SBA was probably one of the only options, but the stipulation with the SBA 7A loan was that you had to buy 100% of the outstanding shares of the company. They wouldn't fund purchasing a portion of a small business that was a C-Corp. There might be other rules, but for buying the C-Corp, they said you had to transfer 100%. So then it was kind of the conversation with my father-in-law. Well, if Wayne wants to exit... Are you willing to exit, at least financially, to where I could buy the whole company? And his answer is yes. He wasn't looking to retire, but 
I think he also saw the opportunity to where if the company sold for a fair value, he would be fine. And they had been through 2006 to 2016 when the conversation first started of a very poor housing market. And both of them were almost where Wayne, the other owner, was actually retired before he bought the Grant Company. Doing that basically put 10 years onto his working career. And it wasn't the 10 years they had planned for when they bought it. And my father-in-law was not quite there. He was a little younger than the other partner, but a similar situation to where he had left a great corporate career and wanted to do something different. At the time, maybe he could have got by without working anymore, but they said, hey, let's purchase a small business, run it for a few years, add some value, get out of it, and we'll be set up and we'll be at the age then when we want to retire. And obviously, buying into the construction industry in 2006 isn't how the story went. But at the current time where I was looking at purchasing, the math kind of worked out where as long as the numbers and purchase price was fair, they would be able to retire. And like I said, because of the loan situation, the whole company had to be sold. So that was 2017. I guess that everything kind of finally got set up, finalized into the due diligence. My banker at the time said they called a 7A loan because you're going to kill seven trees doing all the paperwork to get the thing to the finish line. But we did. We had a couple issues going through with like some insurance stuff. And we had to close in 2017. And we closed, I think, December 29th. At like the last hour, we were all sitting at the closing table waiting for a life insurance policy to get underwritten for me to cover the unsecured debt in the deal. And we basically just sat at the attorney's office until that phone call came through that it had gotten through underwriting. Because if it didn't, we weren't going to close. The SBA was changing rules for 2018 and our loan wouldn't have qualified. So, I mean, we woke up that morning, none of us knowing whether the company was going to get sold or not. And luckily everything went through. And that's kind of how I got to be in the driver's seat of the company. Yeah. So you obviously had experience going into the business. So how different did it feel now being in the driver's seat and you're the one in charge and you have the whole business now, how different was that compared to your previous role in the company? And do you feel like it prepared you enough or was there still this learning curve that maybe you didn't anticipate? I believe on any day you ask me, I would say working for the company and kind of seeing it from the inside out. When I installed, I was face-to-face with all the customers. I knew a lot of the builders really well. I was always on the job site, so they knew me really well. On some days I would say, yeah, that put me in a great position and set me up for success. And on other days, it's like after we sign the documents, you kind of sit back in your chair and say, in what world is a 20 or a nine-year-old with no money allowed to borrow seven figures of money to buy a company with no business experience? I didn't study business in college. At, until that time, I'd worked as a granite installer for most of the time. I sold forklifts for six months before that. And then I worked in the office, mostly with the builders. So some days I was confident that things were going to go well. And other days, I just could not believe that anyone would write that loan. You said you couldn't believe the loan happened. Is that because you felt like you didn't have the business experience and it just felt like a lot of money? Or you were kind of shocked that this just happened at all? All of it. I was 29 years old. I hadn't studied business. I had to come up with 5% down, which honestly, the number I calculated was 5% of the loan value. 
And then at the day before the closing, they told me it was 5% plus some of the fees. And I believe I ran my credit card on the company, the machine, and then wrote myself a check from the company to get the money to come up with the last couple thousand dollars to make the closing even happen. So, I mean, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any collateral. My house was being renovated. So it's like I just bought it. So there's no equity there. They didn't even wrap it into collateral because they're like, you owe 95% of the home's value. So if we have to sell it at foreclosure, we're not even going to get your money back to cover the mortgage. And then because the business was a decent size and we didn't operate with a lot of, we used a lot of labor, but we didn't use a lot of assets. There was not, I mean, I think about half the loan had collateral to it. A small portion had some of like the inventory and stuff, but I'm sure like a lot of other businesses, if you have to sell off the very industry-specific inventory in a foreclosure, it's going to be pennies on the dollar. So there was just a lot that was going to be on the line for the bank at the time. And for 29 years old, it was a lot of money. I mean, for today, it's a lot of money. I still have the business loan. I still look at it often, and it's still a lot of money. We're only about three years into it, so we're paying a lot of interest right now. The principal's not moving us as fast as you'd like to see it. Can you share a little bit about how that felt, taking on a loan of that size and kind of the feeling between you and your wife as you were looking at just the size and knowing that you didn't have collateral and then you had to run your credit card like that? There's got to be a lot of different emotions flying around with that all going on. There was for my wife and I'm sure she'll listen to this, so we'll keep it as kind as possible. She was not a fan at the beginning of mixing business and family when I went to work there. and then. She's always been very supportive and confident. I've kind of always, like I said, school wasn't my forte. She saw me get through school with one of the lowest graduating GPAs you could have and still make it through. But she was always confident that whatever I chose to do and put my mind to, I'd be successful. So she has always had her own career and is very successful. So she kind of just said, you do the best you can do. I'll do the best I can do. It's your company and I'll support you, but it's your company. and it's kind of up to you now. So she was very supportive, but the feeling of taking on the loan was, I think it was a lot more overwhelming than I expected before. When you're going through all the months of diligence and looking at numbers and there's forecasting models and cash flow models, we actually knew that we were going to dip down as soon as we bought the company from the cash perspective, but we thought we could handle it with the line of credit and everything. But yet it bared more weight than I would have thought before I actually signed for the company. So then talk about your first three to six months in the business. How did it feel getting acclimated? And then what kinds of decisions did you start to make that were perhaps different than the previous owners might have done? So the biggest decision we made and would have been actually before we closed on the business, business was picking up. We were still doing everything manually. Kind of like when I said, when we were closing on the business, we didn't have a lot of assets to tie in for collateral because we were cutting with two primitive manual saws. One of them was actually newer, but it was still like the manual version, which puts the purchase price around 50 grand. They depreciate pretty quickly, so there wasn't a lot of value to it. And then we used a lot of manual labor to get the countertops through the production facility. So cutting sinks out was all done by hand. All the polishing was done by hand. We had a forklift to move everything around. So one of the things I started looking into before the closing even happened 
was like, what were the digital options that would allow us to reduce labor or even just get labor back, just limit some of the overtime? We weren't interested in, we have a very stable workforce. A lot of guys have worked for us for a long time. I didn't have any interest in getting rid of anyone. I certainly didn't want the feel of the transition to be, I had purchased a business now and now we're going to start cutting employees. But we were looking for something at the time. We were running probably 20 hours of overtime a week. So even if we cut our labor by 10%, everyone kept their job. They just didn't have to work so much at the time. I think everyone was excited about that. A lot of our guys love if they're working in some overtime, they like to be in that pay scale where it's time and a half. But even with the increased pay rate, there's only so many hours to where it's just not worth it anymore. And we were starting to push those hours more often than we wanted to, more often than the shop guys wanted to. But we had a very loyal crew, so they would kind of do whatever was needed to keep the business rolling and keep the customers happy. So we started to look at some options and decided to go with basically a robotic arm that can do most of the cutting for us. It's got a saw blade as well as a water jet. So where our old equipment could only cut in straight lines with the saw blade, this could do all the kind of the downstream labor of all the sink cutouts and faucet holes and any of the arcs or ear pieces or inside corners, anything that our other saws couldn't do. You can kind of get the shape of a countertop finished And then the only thing left to do downstream would be to polish and finish the pieces. So we found something we thought it was a good option. I had all the contracts written up, signed, financing lined up. In that package deal, we also financed overhead cranes. So instead of using a forklift to move everything, one guy could just use an overhead crane. Instead of always moving one slab at a time, the overhead cranes could unload the full bundle, which is about seven slabs at a time. And on top of that, the overhead cranes would sit over the new machine because you needed some sort of crane device to be able to lay the slabs flat on the new machine. So we kind of bundled that all into one package, teed everything up, found people that were willing to finance the equipment, knowing that the documents were going to get signed the day after I signed the documents to take over the company because the current owners, they were getting ready to retire. They didn't want to sign. It was going to have to be signed with a personal guarantee. They didn't want to sign it because in the event something happened with the purchase between all the equipment, it was around $400,000. That's not something they were looking to do when the company was going to get sold. That was the biggest change. And to date, it's probably still one of the biggest changes we've made. We're extremely happy we did it. I don't know. We have a relatively small footprint for the volume of countertops we cut. And without going down that path or a similar path, We couldn't be where we are today without taking that first step because you just don't have the capacity. Not only does it work faster, it can do it in a smaller footprint. So instead of having to add more and more equipment, we kind of added more expensive equipment that does it quicker. Not only is it robotic, but it also cuts off a digital file, like a CAD file, as opposed to we would kind of lay wooden templates on top of the slabs and trace them. And the old saws would trace all those cuts which is how we did it before. We do it off just dimensions, but that's still, you're kind of going to make one cut, trace out all the dimensions and make the rest manually. The new equipment, you just load the file in, hit go, and it'll go until it's done. And then you unload it and load the next job. That's the biggest change we've made. And like I said, we made it before. I made kind of that decision 
as soon as I knew I was going to take over the company, it kind of made it a little extra groundwork because we had to find someone that was willing to finance the deal. And like I said, they also had to finance a deal on top of a company that was now one day into a new business loan that was unsecured, but they kind of came and looked at our volume. They knew the industry. It was like a lender that works with our industry all the time. So they looked at our business, saw what we were doing, saw the equipment we wanted to bring in, which kind of also gave us the nod of approval that we thought we were going in the right direction because they said, yeah, this is going to help you bring your cost down and paying for the equipment won't be an issue with the, like, the time savings, the labor savings you're going to have because of the new equipment. So yeah, that kind of helps just convince us that we were making the right decision. Yeah. So that made obviously your production a lot more efficient and labor costs more efficient as well. So then if that's taking your expenses, perhaps lower, at least more effective, how did you start to go about increasing your top line in your sales? We cut countertops for mostly the residential segment. And as much as that's a tangible good, I'll tell anyone that ever asks, we're in the service industry. Because if you get a natural stone from Brazil from me or in Brazil or California or my competitor, you're getting the same material. So the only thing that we can do to differentiate ourselves is be competitive on price. But more importantly for the builders is we're going to be there when we say they're going to be there. And if we ever have a mistake or an issue or something comes up, we're very responsive to fix it quickly. For the sales side of things, at the time we had a pretty good customer base. We'd gotten in with some production builders. The industry was certainly picking up. The construction market was picking up. Houses were being built quickly. And the biggest thing I would think we did is we didn't make mistakes. And if we did, we corrected it. And that helped us in multiple ways. One, our current customers were starting to build more houses. So someone that did 80 houses in 2017 was going to do 90 or 100 houses in 2018. There was a lot of companies that were buying other companies. So if a housing company acquired another smaller housing company and we were the parent company's vendor, we would typically get all the business of the new companies coming in. I mean, knock on wood, I don't know of us ever losing a big customer to this day. And I also don't think we have ever, of two companies merged, we always came out as a countertop vendor. So between companies merging, our current set of business growing from like our current customers growing their businesses. And then the other thing that helps us a lot is a lot of the purchasing managers or vice presidents of construction, a lot of those guys change jobs and pretty frequently. So if we have a good relationship with someone and they've been the head of purchasing for company A and they move to company B and they're having issues with their countertop vendor, I would say more often than not, we get a phone call. I'm going to send you what these guys are doing or what their pricing looks like. Can you guys offer these the same colors? Can you match the pricing? Can you be competitive? Can we do this program that you guys were doing for the other company, for this company? The answer for us is yes. So we've done a lot of work to get in with a lot of the production builders, but we've had a great reputation of basically word of mouth, but really for when employees would go from one company to another, we've always maintained a good relationship in the industry. So a lot of times if everything goes well and someone else has an issue, they'll call us to kind of help solve their issues and 
reduce the amount of headaches. So in maintaining that reputation piece, what things do you do with your business that you feel are different than your competitors that allow you to have that reputation? I'll stand by the fact that it's a service industry. There's a couple things I think our customers like. We're still a fairly small company. Most of the customers we deal with day to day, there's only three or four of us, maybe four or five of us now in the office that are going to pick up the phone when they call. So they don't have to chase someone down or get in touch with the scheduling department or call this department because it's a warranty issue. They'll just call up and say, hey, is Jason there? Or, hey, is Ross there? Yeah, he's here. What do you need? My painters came in and chipped the top. Can you guys send someone out to repair? We'll get there tomorrow. And that's what it is. In a perfect relationship, the purchasing agents or heads of companies in the building construction, they really don't know us because the only time they're going to hear about the countertop vendor is if things aren't going well. We've had people that we've dealt with for, we might have done a couple hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars of business with them. And we've never met them in person because the only time you have to go there and meet is if they're having issues. And they'll just say, someone calls them and say, hey, can I talk to you about your countertops? And they'll say no, because we have zero issues with their countertops and we're not willing to make a change. That's the biggest thing for us is the service. And you see it a lot. I mean, you just talk to people that are remodeling. It's like people don't call you back or they don't show up. The idea that you're going to run a company and not show up when you say you are without calling the customer. I mean, even if you're calling the next day and say, hey, something came up or I just got to notice that one of my guys got delayed. Or We do a lot of countertops and work with a lot of guys. And we've heard every story in the books of why jobs haven't been complete. We had a lady pull out in front of one of our installers and totaled not only the vehicle, but the countertops that he was towing. We had a guy that got pulled over and he didn't have like the right card with him at the time. So they took him in and then he called his mom and his mom didn't return his call. So it was two days before <laughs> he was able to get out. They held him overnight. So it's like, you know, we couldn't get a hold of him. His phone's off and everything. We're trying to figure out what's going on, where our countertops are, where he is. Is he okay? In today's world, it's very unusual to not get a hold of someone. Certainly, if you're going to hear from them again, every now and then people just disappear. But the guy worked for us for years. And it's like, after the first day, you're like, something's going on. It's not just a broken phone or something. We can't get a hold of him or people that know him can't get a hold of him. And that was just so unusual. But like I said, everything in the world is going to come up as an issue and issues with material or issues with our suppliers or issues with machinery going down. But just call the customer. The one thing I didn't enjoy my first job in sales, but the owner would always say, he's like, there's no good news or bad news. There's just news. There's only the facts of what happened. So if Everyone hates to make a phone call and something that they perceive is going to be a negative situation. But I might call a customer and say, hey, I'm sorry, but the slab cracked or it came in, it was damaged. I don't want to take the chance of putting that in your house and you not being happy with it. They're like, oh, well, tomorrow's better anyway. So that'll actually work out better for me. And it's like the phone call you were dreading is a relief to the customer because they gotten caught up and now they weren't really ready to get their countertops or their painters were a day late. So now everything was going to be wet if we had got there on the day we were supposed to. But it's just like, pick up the phone call and let the customer know what's going on because the worst phone call you get is when they call you and say, the countertops aren't here. It's a hundred times worse than you making the phone call to them proactively to say, hey, here's what's going on. The countertops aren't going to be there. It sounds simple, just running a business and picking up the phone, calling customers. But it must be slightly more complicated than that. So why do you think more people don't answer the phone or don't show up as timely as you might? 
like I said, we've seen a hundred different reasons where things can go wrong and they do go wrong. Why people don't call do what's something that sounds so simple. I don't know if it's they're afraid to deliver what they perceive as bad news, or I think sometimes they just don't have the procedures in place to where if something's not going to get done, there's some chain of command for someone to let them know. I mean, we've certainly made mistakes before ourselves, but it's a lot easier to be proactive if things aren't going right than it is to get that phone call from them. Because for us, we're in new construction. So if we don't give them a call, the tile guy shows up and then the tile guy's calling the builder to tell them that there's no countertops there. You know, we see it all the time with cabinets not being in place when we're supposed to be there. So we don't want people to do it to us. We'd like them to call the builder so the builder can give us a heads up. We just wish everyone had that same courtesy. And I really don't know. The idea of running a successful business in construction or the service industry, I don't think there's a lot of companies that show up when they say they're going to show up and do what they say they're going to do and not have a good business. You just don't see it. Very rarely do people have a lot of quality issues or anything. The stories you hear from friends and family, it's like, oh, the guy never came back or the job was halfway done or he came and quoted and everything and then I never heard from him again. He was supposed to start last Tuesday, but now it's Friday and I can't get a hold of him. It's like all the stories are the same. And I think a huge portion of it is just be there when you say you're going to be there. Do what you say you're going to do. And if you make a mistake, own up to it and correct it. But you're right. It sounds simple, but it's just it's like common sense. It's just not that common. What other elements of customer service do you feel that you don't currently do that well, or at least you only do to an average degree that you're trying to get better at going forward? We're still growing. We're getting kind of busier as the years go on. Historically, there was a time period where we really shied away from retail business. At the beginning, we didn't. And we realized we were getting frustrated because retail jobs weren't going well. We were late to jobs or the customer didn't tell us they wanted something or they explained to one thing and we interpreted it a different way. And for a while, we were so busy, we just basically put a sign on the door that said, we're not currently taking any new business or any retail business. We were only servicing contractors and new construction, which turned a lot of people off. It was always hard to have a conversation with someone that you weren't willing to give them an estimate. You know, They would get frustrated. They're like, well, I have a kitchen that I need. And what's hard to convey to them is that, listen, if I do your kitchen, you're not going to be happy. My level of service for a retail job right now is not good because I don't have the time. I don't have the manpower and we're just not set up to do it well. So at first we would say yes to anything because certainly with a new business, it's hard to not, it's hard to turn down work. But the realization that if we said yes, the outcome wasn't good for the customer. It was better for them to be disappointed for us not doing the business than to say yes and disappoint them. Since then, we've kind of taken on a little bit of the retail side and kind of opened our doors back. But before we did that, we kind of tried to put some things in place to where a lot of times if you're a retail customer or a local customer to us, you're going to be the first stop in the morning. Because if everything goes super smooth, maybe an install will take an hour. And if there's an issue or the cabinets have to be adjusted, it could take two or three hours. Well, that makes it very hard to schedule the second job. And because of a lot of our work is still new construction, the builders don't care when we get there. As long as when they show up the next day, the tops are there, 
they're really not time sensitive, but the retail customers are. So we've tried to put more procedures in place to kind of get all their selections up front and verify that what we think they want is what they want, as well as get the timing to where we like to do it first thing in the morning because that's easy for us to hit the time slot. But if someone has to be in the afternoon, we try to be set the expectation up front. When we give you a window, it's going to be a big window because if everything goes smoothly ahead of you, our guys could be there at noon. And if everything takes a little time, it might be four o'clock. But setting the expectations with those customers on the front end gives you a much happier customer on the back end. And that's one of the things we've been working on. We're still not perfect. There's a lot of companies that have really set themselves up to handle retail business really well. We're trying to do better with it as we do more of it. But that's kind of one of the things where we're trying to improve. We'll be the first ones to say, we're not perfect. If you walk into our shop on any given day, it's organized chaos. And if people that know the industry walk into our shop on any given day, they'll say, hey, it's fairly clean. And I'm really surprised you guys do what you guys do in this facility. But most shops I see doing your volume are twice the size or they have this much equipment or whatever the story went. But we're trying to improve the organization and kind of minimize the chaos, but it's definitely still there. We've grown maybe 20 to 30% a year since we've purchased the business. We do about a million dollars of sales additional every year. When we purchased it, we were doing around 4 million and the year we just closed out was right around 8 million. We constantly have a lot of growing pains and it's hard to kind of fine tune your processes when you got to figure out how to do just 20% more of everything every year. The equipment helps. We've bought more equipment. We've put more cranes in. They just got finished installing this week. We've bought some more machinery to help with the labor downstream, but it's still, we're doing everything in the same footprint. And back when the company was originally purchased in 2006, you're talking about a volume that was maybe one and a half million. I think in the slow years, that number got closer to like 1.2, $100,000 a month. And then November last year, we did 800000 a month. And the facility hasn't gotten any bigger. So a lot of our time and energy is also figuring how we do more volume in the same footprint. But it's organized chaos. We like to think it's organized. It might not look like it from the outside coming in, but we constantly meet and discuss of how we could try to make it better. We're not going to sit here and say, hey, we're doing everything right and we're the model countertop company. We will sit here and say we have very good service for our customers and As far as they know, we're organized, but all the mess on the back end, we're trying to clean up. Do you have any stories from any of these growing pains that you'd be willing to share? There's a lot of them. At the beginning, the growing pains, a lot of it was financial. I had bought the business. I didn't have any money. Receivables was always growing. The inventory was always growing. If you looked at the books, we were a profitable company, but the growth was outpacing the cash flow. So... We drew a line of credit very early on. We used it for a long time and often because we were busier and busier. We needed more inventory. We had just put more equipment in. I think part of me didn't realize if I'm putting a $300,000 robot in, that's going to cost me 300000 I know what the loan looks like. I know what the payment looks like. But one of the surprises that came in later than it should have was we didn't have the power to run it. So. Not only do you have to get set up, we had to go from 240 to 480 voltage, which was a new drop from the power company. But to run 
that much power from one side of the building to the other was $8,000 a wire. And there's things like that. It's just like the lack of experience where both the lack of experience and the growth side, we were constantly having to upgrade. Like for instance, our water system, that was something that before I bought the company, we were always working on. Now we do everything wet. So we consume a lot of water. When the company wasn't recycling, I think we were going through about 75,000 gallons of water a month, which is a ton and brings up a lot of environmental questions of what do you do with all the water? And the, I mean, the shorter answer is you have to recycle it. And as you grow and you add saws and you add guys down the line, you have to be able to recycle more water more quickly and remove a lot more of the sludge, dirt, debris, whatever you want to call it, that gets in the water from all the cutting. So I went through and looked at other water systems and the stuff was just wildly expensive at the time. And there was no way with buying everything else that we could afford some of the more expensive systems. So I went through my head and was like, well, if I go directly to these container manufacturers, I can get these tanks and that should give us a capacity to do twice the volume. And this might've been 2016. And we put in this huge system. We went from being able to store 1,000 gallons of water to storing 3,000 gallons of dirty water and 6,000 gallons of clean water. And in my head, it's just like, this is the end-all, be-all, greatest solution the world has ever seen to recycling water for a countertop facility. We should be able to double our volume and not have any issues and save all our water headaches and keep us compliant with the environmental regulations. And sure enough, last year, I got to look back and say, hey, we double the volume. The water system is not adequate anymore. And what seemed like a solution that we would never have to cross again, at first I was like, how is this possible? How can we not get enough water through here? You know, we designed this thing to be the answer for twice the volume. And then I just kind of sat back and I was like, well, that was four years ago. So we're at twice the volume. And we went from doing a kind of an 18, $20,000 DIY system to a, we just put in an $80,000 recycling system, which when I bought the company, I never would have believed would be something we'd be doing. But it's kind of, you learn, I'd say the biggest thing you learn from the growth is do things correctly the first time because any corners you cut are going to come back to bite you. A lot of guys will, in the shop and the guys I work with will say, ask Jason what he wants you to do because if you do it your way, there's a good chance you're going to be doing it again. And I'd like to think I don't carry that mentality, but I think history has taught me if it's not right, even some might be, hey, it's a lot of work to go around this post to set this new equipment in, just put it in front of the post. Well, six months later, when you need that space, you're going to be setting that equipment around the post anyway. So it's like, instead of cutting the corner and just doing it, maybe it saves you a day or maybe it saves you some money or whatever it is. Certainly with the growth staying, it's like all that stuff that we've tried to do halfway or the easier option or the cheaper option has kind of come back to not to bite us, but it's like, when you're out there after hours, one weekend or whatever the time is doing it again, it really sinks in quickly. If you should have just done it right the first time. You're never going to look back and say, hey, you did this too correctly. You did this too much of the right way to where it's just too perfect. You're always going to look back and say, even for customers walking and like some of the electrical and stuff when I got, it was right and it passed code, but it just, it looked sloppy and kind of going through like the utilities. The other day when we put the new water system in, I could kind of step back and it's like every power line, 
water line, recycled water line. Almost every utility in the building has been replaced since I got there. A lot of it's just volume or doing it correctly. Or We did a big push last year for voluntary OSHA compliance, which was terrifying. You basically make a phone call, invite them to your place and say, hey, you guys, look around, make a list of what you see. But then it's my obligation, whatever you find, I have to fix it. That's kind of the stuff that the growth, it's just like, we spent a lot of years trying to make everything right before we even felt close enough to ready to make that phone call. Because at the beginning, there was stuff that we would always try to do stuff safely. But as you learn some of the rules and everything, you're like, hey, because of this, that's not going to fly. And it's like, if you call them in early, you have to be able to handle whatever list they present you. And it burns through a lot of money to do it, but it's definitely the right thing to do. But we started kind of chipping away at the things we thought would be on the list before we even said, hey, we're ready to actually make the phone call. So in terms of growth, I would say the big takeaway is just if you know you're growing and you have to make changes, do it to the best of your ability, what you deem the best way to do it, not at the time, but even in the future, because there's a lot of projects that we've done twice at this point. Do you think those are projects you've done twice because you weren't optimistic enough for what your growth would eventually be? Or was there a little bit, not consciously, but perhaps mentally you were thinking a little bit about controlling cost or trying to over-optimize for the time it would take to implement a solution? I think we've had the fortune of making so many mistakes that we've almost crossed every bridge. Some of the stuff, I mean, you have to be cost conscious. It's certainly, like I said at the beginning, one of the biggest issues with the growth was just the money and the cash flow. I mean, the cash just wasn't there. So some of that was, you can't spend money that doesn't exist. And I get that. And we've definitely been in the situation. Some of it was just ignorance. When we designed the water system, it's like, oh, you could do anything you want at the time. I don't even think any of us would have believed that we could be at the size we are now in the same facility. Maybe you could say we weren't optimistic. I don't think we were optimistic that we couldn't get to the size. But in our head, we've always had, when we were doing, before I bought the company, say it was $3 million, It's like, man, to do $4 million in this facility is going to be tough. And then new equipment came in, and it's like, oh, well, that makes four kind of very easy to do in the current situation. But then, you know, that year you did $5 million and the next year you did $6 million and you're like, you're starting to kind of step back and say, if you're going to get to $7 million, you're going to have to make some changes. But then $7 million comes and goes. And that's kind of what has led to a lot of the redoing projects. We had some guys come in and kind of fix a lot of stuff. A lot of the tools we use are air tools. So if you told me early on what it would cost to run new airlines in the building, I would either not believe you or just say, maybe, but we'll never do it because it's so expensive to do it correctly. The problem is if you don't do it correctly, you're getting water into tools and a polisher is $300, which is certainly to smaller companies a lot of money, but we would sit there with 10 polishers stacked up because water's getting in the lines because the lines aren't right. Well, for 10 polishers, you could have kind of fixed the lines or you could have put an air dryer in so that these tools would last longer. That was one of the things where at first we fixed the airlines because they needed to be fixed. And then the second time we fixed the airlines, it's because we needed the space, which means the air compressors had to go outside. It would also make it nicer for the guys in the shop not to have the noise of the air compressors inside. And then the third time we fixed the airlines was because we were going to 
have so many more people in the shop that we needed more volume downstream. So all three are legitimate reasons to replace the airlines. And now we've kind of gotten better about, I don't know if you call it optimistic and say, what's the best case scenario or from the difficulty side, what's the worst case scenario, but in what scenario do we need more airlines? And let's do it for that scenario now so that in the future, it's a lot of those things, like especially the utilities are hard to work on because you can't work on them when the shop's running. And if you're constantly growing, the shop's running all the time so that you kind of sign yourself up for a lot of after hours work. And as we get busier and I get busier, the after hours work gets more tedious and always weighs on you. So it's even more reason to do it right the first time, because if you're going to have to stay on a weekend or late one night or when the off hours, when the shop's not running, you certainly don't want to be doing that two years from now. So the reasons we've had to redo stuff are numerous. I don't think it was ever a lack of optimism. I don't know if it's being optimistic or arrogant or some blend, but we've always done a great job with our service to the customers. And we've always kind of stood beside the belief that that will keep our customers loyal and allow us to gain new customers as people have the need for a better countertop vendor. But I mean, a lot of it is just like a couple of years ago, we didn't think it was possible to do what we're doing now without moving. That's a bridge we haven't crossed yet with all the equipment and all the utilities and everything we've kind of done and redone. It's extremely expensive to either move or buy a facility or build out a facility to do what we're doing. And it's hard to find property right now. We haven't moved. It's not because we haven't looked. We're kind of like a real specific size. Our building was built for countertops. So we have very high ceilings compared to most warehouses. So it's hard to find something existing that would fit. It's hard to find something like geographically that we like. So it's just a path we haven't crossed yet. But We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Luckily, a lot of them are driven from the growth and everything, but there's no shortage of reasons of why we've had to kind of circle back and redo things. But it's like I said, we don't claim to be perfect. So now when kind of issues come up, we really try to look down the future and say, aside from before when we thought what we're doing now isn't possible, in the wildest dreams, what is possible and how do we plan for that? So... Hopefully we're getting better every time problems present ourselves and hopefully we don't have to double back on a lot of the work we're doing now, but you also don't know what you don't know. The problems of 2016 are not the problems of 2020. The challenges of a company that's cutting 1,000 slabs a year are not the challenge of a company that's cutting 4,000 slabs a year. Or even there's kind of break-even points on stuff. If something takes you 10 seconds to do, but you have to do it 100 times a year, it's a different story than something that takes you 10 seconds that you have to do a thousand times a year. So you're also running into situations where four or five years ago, just not that the problem didn't exist, but the solution wasn't worth implementing because the problem wasn't painful enough at the time. I don't know a world where problems don't keep coming up. I'm welcome to it. I'm open to it. I would love it, but it's the catch 22. If we ever slow down from having problems caused by growth, it's because we slow down and if we have any say in it, we certainly prefer not to. Yeah, certainly. Moving into closing questions, what class would you teach in college if you could teach about anything you wanted? Man, if you ask the college, I'm not sure teaching a class there would be an option. But if they let me back and they said I could teach a course, I think I would teach a course on developing an action plan 
for a business or for purchasing a business. I think a lot of people you talk to, you just hear like, oh, I'd love to buy a business or I'd love to have a business or 90% of the time you hear this idea of something that they'd want to do. And not a lot of the time do you hear what they've actually done. I've made a lot of decisions based on things I wasn't knowledgeable about or I didn't have all the information on. I kind of stand beside the fact of the best thing to do is going to be the right thing. The second best thing to do is the wrong thing, but the worst thing to do is nothing. And I think there's a lot of people out there that kind of like me when I was young and buying the business, it's overwhelming or it's daunting or how do you lend a kid in his 20s seven figures of money? But I think a lot of people just need some sort of guidance or, I mean, really, they just need the confidence to get started. It's like you said. How does something like showing up on time and doing what you say you're going to do sound so easy? But a lot of people don't do it. But that's basically what we do. And it's led to what I would consider a very successful countertop company. And I think what a lot of people don't have or don't realize is just the drive or the push or the confidence just to start something. Because I would even say if you start small, the person that start small and fails has more experience than the person that didn't start. Maybe it's their second try that's successful or their third try, but you're on the earth for a long time. If you never start, you're never going to get anything done. Maybe the first go of things aren't perfect, but if you don't start, you're not going to do anything. And I think that's one of the things that, yeah, it's daunting or challenging or intimidating, or there's a hundred different adjectives to why Things could go wrong, but man, just get started. It's the hardest part about doing it. And I think a lot of people could kind of realize their dreams or be happier in their jobs, or even if it's not job related, if they just had the plan together to get the ball rolling, I think a lot of people would do it and they'd be successful, but they just need a little push to get the ball rolling. So I think that's something I don't have all the answers or a lot of the answers, but if I could help younger people or inexperienced people get started, I think I would look back and say that that was a good use of my time in teaching the class. And that was a good use of their time in taking it. Yeah, that'd be a good class. I'd certainly be interested. What's a belief used to hold strongly that you've changed your mind on? This was tough because I kind of said in the countertop world, we've changed our mind on almost everything because everything changes and we're constantly facing new battles. But I think one of the big things that changed, and I think maybe a lot of your listeners can relate. When I was young, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. And on my phone today, I still have a list of ideas. And the list of ideas are things I wanted to do or businesses that I think would work. But when I was young, a lot of those ideas were inventions. And it's just like, what is the next widget? Or there's some great inventions out there, Scrub Daddy. You see them all in like Shark Tank. There's a ton of great inventions that make people a ton of money. In my younger years, I always kind of looked to that path of like, oh, that's a great path to success. And I think the irony there is in its simplest form and how I like to explain my job to people is I will take a large rectangle of rock and cut it into small rectangles of rock for you. There's no magic. I mean, literally playing with rocks. But if you do it right and you keep the customers happy, it's, just, it's a successful business. And I think a lot of people, or I know I certainly did when I was young, look to 
reinvent the wheel or invent a new wheel or come up with some grand idea of how I could have a business or be successful. And the reality is a lot of homeowners now, certainly in the service industries, like they just want someone to stick to the word and be reliable. You don't have to have some crazy idea. When Amazon started, he was selling books online. It's like a small boutique bookstore and look where they are now. And it, it has nothing to do with the products they offer. They offer the same products that everyone else has. You buy it because it's more convenient on Amazon or you buy it because it's faster on Amazon. You rarely buy it. I mean, now they have all their house brands, but you rarely buy it because it's a different product. The only thing they're changing is the service. And I think that's one of the things I've really changed my mind on. When I was a young kid, I just thought, hey, you got to invent something to be wildly successful or have your own business or do anything. But you look back now and certainly you talk to all the other guests and it's like, no, just find something that you can do and just do it well. And a lot of times that'll kind of create its own business and you do it well, it'll be a good one. That's a really profound insight. I like that one a lot. What's the best business you've ever seen? I don't have a great answer. I've seen some incredible countertop businesses that we've toured. I've seen, we have a good friend that does a cabinet business. It's like, a, I think a lot of these businesses and a lot of people that talk about the best business they've seen is like the outside looking in. I think a lot of times it's like, you might not realize that it's chaos from the inside looking out. But I think one of my favorite businesses that I've seen is, I don't know if you've ever been in the Atlanta area, but there's a small pizza shop that started across the street from where I lived when I was in college. And they will seat you on wooden benches. They'll serve you on a baking sheet. You can basically tear off a paper towel to be your plate. And it's just by far the best pizza that Atlanta has. And a lot of times they get voted best in Georgia or best in Atlanta or best in the Southeast. But from the business side, they use the wood-burning ovens. So your pizza's done in a matter of minutes. So they can turn over a ton of customers. They probably have eight different pizzas, but in total, maybe 12 different ingredients. So like, I mean, their skew count is almost nothing. Aside from the dough, they have 13 different toppings. It's BYOB. So they don't have to keep a lot of like drinks in stock. I mean, it's just a super simple business, but the pizza is incredible. It's wildly expensive. They turn over a ton of customers. I mean, there's lines outside every day and it's just like they run such a successful operation with such a simple offering. It's like a lot of places you go to, they'll have menus for days. And these guys are the exact opposite. Their menu could fit on a business card because they offered so few options, but they run an incredible business. And I think it's like you said, it goes back to the simplicity. You don't have to do everything for everyone. I mean, that guy just makes really good pizzas quickly and that's it. He doesn't care if you bring your own drinks. You're not going to get some fine dining tablecloths and everything. But even without all that, you're still going to go pay 30 bucks for a pizza and you're going to eat it on a park bench inside the restaurant on your napkin. That's a paper towel and you're going to love it because the food's really good. That's a business that I really enjoy because it's really simple, but they do a fantastic job. That's pretty neat. I'll have to check it out if I'm ever in the Atlanta area. Thank you so much for sharing your time, Jason. This is awesome. Thanks for telling us about your business and some improvements you made and all the constant process improvement too. That's been really fun to hear about. 
I really love the show. I appreciate you having me on. Kind of like I said before, if anyone, if I had a class, I would tell people just get out there and get started. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening either already have businesses or thinking about getting into businesses and you just got to start somewhere because you can have a great life if you do, if you get started and do a good job with it. Very true. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hoden Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.